namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa puttang dhammang samkhang samsaṃ so you've had a chance to do a kind of retreat on your own and know there's been duties with a kitchen and so on as I was saying to the son the other day, yesterday, um, you kind of see what happens when there's no schedule. How do you function? Do you, is it good? Do you do it well? Do you do it? Does your mind get... Uh, do you need discipline, like an external f- structure to help you? What are the strengths you have when you're on your own with no structure? Um, what are the weaknesses that uh, present themselves when there's no structure? What are the aversions you have when you're on your own? Or what are the aversions when you have with people? So the, the, the attempt to vary, vary monastic life in these minimal ways is quite helpful to, just to see where, where you're at with all that. And always in a monastic life, is a, it's an opportunity that is given to us through the goodness of, of the laity and... Uh, the diligence of all those who have come before us in this, this lovely tradition that we're a part of. So it's, a, it's an incredible offering that we have. And so to always try to make that foremost in your mind, this is an opportunity, this is a rare opportunity wherever for people to get this chance, and tomorrow you may die. So that, to make that paramount in the mind, so you use your time well, and then and dedicate your practice to the generosity of the lay people that support us, make this possible, generosity of our teachers who have done this work before us. These are, these are the monastic reflections and renunciant reflections of uh, aspiration. Aspiration which isn't just based on some kind of selfishness, but rather a, a, like an altruism, of a, as uh, Tan King was saying the other yesterday, that you know, I do this for the, for your benefit, because the more enlightened we each of us is, the more it benefits you. Uh, so there's a kind of sense of altruism. Huh? This is this practice isn't simply about me getting tranquility for myself and just using the situation in some kind of selfish mode, but rather it's a it's a rather enlightenment. It's a very grand gesture: freedom from selfishness, freedom from ego. These are very, very high ideals. I was uh, reading on Buddhist ethics and so on, and, and uh, I was reminded of that uh, story uh, in in the early parts of the canon where the Buddha recommends uh, asubha meditations to, uh, to the monks in a monastery. And uh, so he leaves them with these asubha meditations, and the purpose of the asubha meditations are for dispassion, for, uh, and the ways to do that is to contemplate the foulness of the body, or the foulness of food, or death, or uh, the disfiguration of having corpses and skeletons and such like. And so, as you all know the story, the Buddha leaves, goes somewhere else, and comes back after after the and he finds that a lot of monks have died. And uh, so what's happening? 
course, what's happened is that the monks took the Asuba meditation wrong, and they lost, got lost in disgust for the body, and disgust for samsara, and they started to commit suicide. And uh, there was one monk who was a rather sham monk, and he realized that if he killed them, he could get their ball and robes. So he was collecting masses of ball and robes, and through halfway through the Vasa, whenever period of time this was, he, he started to have some self-doubts. <laughs> and uh, apparently some demonic force came to him and said, no, go for it. Help these guys get out of samsara. Samsara is a real bummer. So go for it. So then he got even more enthusiastic, and the texts say that and he managed one day to kill 60 monks. So those numbers troubled me. <laughs> so how, many, how big was this monastery? But what's interesting is there is where you get you get the Buddha giving a teaching uh, and it being taken wrongly in a kind of um, nihilism. You know that samsara is a horrible, horrible place, and that the body is a horrible, horrible thing, and that the rejection of all that, the rejection of samsara, a natural conclusion from that is suicide because then it will all come to an end, which is a very nihilistic, <laughs> wrong view of what the Buddhist teaching is about. And I think that's kind of indicative sometimes of the way when we don't keep in mind that the, the, the Buddha's realization was not nihilistic. It was a, a liberating realization. And the reason he placed emphasis on non-grasping of the khandhas, of the body and so on, was not that they were inherently bad in a kind of original sin manner, that they were wrong or anything, but they were just functions in nature which if one was constantly focused on them, then the realization of the unconditioned of the deathless was not possible. So it was a, a wrong viewing, a wrong looking, a wrong uh, attentiveness on the wrong thing. And this can happen in meditation where one is so attentive to the object of meditation, one doesn't realize that actually the object of meditation is still an object, still a thing, and it's still bound by anicca dukkha natta. And so people can get very tranquil through different kinds of meditation, but that tranquility is always dependent on circumstances and on the object of meditation. And so when they walk away from the meditation, the defilements and the angers and fears and doubts arise once again. And Lopacha kind of compared that to putting a rock on the grass. When you put the rock on the grass, you take the rock off, then the grass grows again. So while the rock is on the grass, it suppresses the grass, but as soon as you take the rock off, the grass comes up again. So the point of like dispassion was not a rejection of the body, it was just don't put all your energy and attention into that. Where we, most of you know, I think, this text, which is called the Path of Purification, the Sudhimagga, and that just comes from where Siddhartha was born. I think Buddha Gosha was born how far from Chennai? Uh, 80 kilometers. 80 kilometers. So he might have been somewhere in your family. He might be a relative. He was a Brahmin, right? Yeah. So who knows huh? how these things work? 
But the Vasudhi Magga, if, if none of you have looked at it, it's probably uh, one of the most amazing texts, I think, in religious literature. It's an, it's an extraordinary compilation of what existed in, we think, in Theravada up to that uh, 6th century. 6th century, yeah. And uh, in itself must have been an amazing work of many, many monks, I think, to put that together. But then to actually translate that too, Yanamoli Tara was the translator uh, early on. and So it's quite an astounding piece of literature. And in that you'll find these classic uh, modes of objects of meditation. So I just printed them out just to remind you uh, of the different ways that we find in, in Theravada commentary and other teachers have described other ways of meditating, but this is the kind of commentarial tradition. Of the 40 objects meditated upon as kamatana, the first 10 are things that one can behold directly, kasina or a whole, earth element, water element, fire, air or wind, blue-green, kasina, yellow, kasina, red, kasina, white, enclosed space, bright light. So they're the tens that can, things that can behold directly. So, Brian, you can't do the kasinas, I'm sorry. <laughs> you could do darker lighters. Then the next ten are objects of repulsion, asuba, swollen corpse, discolored bluish corpse, festering corpse, fissured corpse, gnawed corpse, dismembered or hacked and scattered corpse, bleeding corpse, worm-eaten corpse, and skeleton. So you can see these these monks maybe were contemplating that, and and we're just getting so repelled by it that they didn't see the repulsion, it was not, wasn't the point. It was a non-grasping of the body and passion that was the point. So they took repulsion as their object, and they followed the repulsion and committed assisted suicide. So that's the first instance we have in Theravada literature of what our take is on assisted suicide, not to be done. Tanner recollections, anusati, First three recollections are the values of the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Next are three recollections of the virtues of morality, liberality, chaga, the wholesome attributes of devas. Recollections of the body, kaya, death, the breath, prana, or breathing, anapana, Peace, Nibbana. Four are stations of Brahma, Brahma Vihara, unconditional kindness and goodwill, Metta, compassion, Karuna, sympathetic joy or another success, Mudita, even mindedness or equanimity, Upeka. Four are formless states, infinite space, infinite consciousness infinite nothingness, neither perception nor non-perception. One is of perception of disgust of food. The last is the analysis of the four elements, earth, water, fire, air. So those are pretty much what, um, like if you look at the recollections of Metta Bhavana, you'll find the 
highly articulated methodology there of developing around different kinds of beings, metta and so on. So if you're ever interested in pursuing any of these, you get you get a very formal presentation in this in the, in the Visuddhimagga. I wanted to just present a recollection of peace, which is the or the, the recollection of Nibbana. Because I think this is the antidote to what those monks are doing by by reflecting on death, but not really reflecting on the Buddha's enlightenment. They miss the point. And that's what we can do. We can be we can we can reject something in a kind of that's not it. But the point of rejecting something is not that there's nothing. Otherwise you'd have nihilism. And not that there is something like an object. So you have this very strange language around around Nibbana. Recollection of peace. So this is the tenth of the of the Anusati. One who wants to develop the recollection of peace, mentioned next to mindfulness of breathing, should go into solitary retreat and recollect the special qualities of Nibbana. In other words, the stilling of all suffering as follows. Bhikkhus, insofar as there are dhammas, whether formed or unformed, fading away is pronounced the best of them. That is to say, the disillusionment of vanity, the elimination of thirst, the abolition of reliance, the termination of the round, the destruction of craving, fading away, cessation, Nibbana. And that's from the Anguttara Nikaya. So then he parses that in his commentary. Herein, insofar as means as many as. So he's parsing the Anguttara uh, quote, right? Because insofar as there are dhammas, whether formed or unformed, fading ways pronounced the best of them, that is to say, the disillusionment of vanity, the elimination of thirst, the abolition of reliance, the termination of the round, the destruction of craving, fading away, cessation nibbana. So now Buddha Gosha parses those words. Herein, insofar as means as many as, Dhammas means individual essences, whether formed or unformed, whether made by conditions going together, coming together, or not so made. Fading ways pronounce the best of them. Of these formed and unformed Dhammas, fading away is pronounced the best, is called the foremost and the highest. Herein, fading away is not mere absence of greed, but rather it is that unformed Dhamma, which, while given the names disillusionment of vanity, etc., in the clause, that is to say the disillusionment of vanity, is treated basically as fading away. It is called disillusionment of vanity because on coming to it, all kinds of vanity, such as the vanity of conceit and vanity of manhood, are disillusioned, undone, done away with. 
and it is called elimination of thirst because on coming to it all thirst for sense desires is eliminated and quenched but it is called abolition of reliance because on coming to it reliance on the five chords of sense desire is abolished it is called termination of the round because on coming to it the round of the three planes of existence is terminated it is called destruction of craving because on coming to it, craving is entirely destroyed, fades away, and ceases. It is called Nibbana, because it has gone away from, has escaped from, is disassociated from craving, which has acquired in common usage the name fastening, because by ensuring success of becoming, craving serves as a joining together, a binding together, a lacing together, of the four kinds of generation, five destinies, seven stations of consciousness, and nine abodes of being. This is how peace, in other words, Nibbana, should be recollected according to its special qualities, beginning with disillusionment of vanity. But it should also be recollected according to the other special qualities of peace stated by the Blessed One in the suttas, beginning with, because... I shall teach you the unformed, the truth, the other shore, the heart to see, the undecaying, the lasting, the undiversified, the deathless, the auspicious, the safe, the marvelous, the intact, the unafflicted, the purity, the island, and the shelter. As he recollects peace in its special qualities of disillusionment, of vanity, etc., in this way, then, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by greed, or obsessed by hate, or obsessed by delusion. His, his mind has rectitude on that occasion, being inspired by peace. So, when he has suppressed the hindrances in the way already described, under the recollection of the Enlightened One, etc., the jhana factors arise in a single moment. But owing to the profundity of the special qualities of peace, or owing to his being occupied in recollecting special qualities of various kinds, the jhana is only access and does not reach absorption, and that jhana itself is known as recollection of peace, too, because it arises by means of the special qualities of peace. Okay, so that, first of all, just to, to note how scholars take a take apart a piece of literature, they parse it word by word, phrase by phrase. And so if you're, if you're looking at that yourself and you're reading this kind of a commentary, that gives food for thought. And you look at all those words. But to me, what seems significant, because I was reflecting on that mistake those bhikkhus made, and the Buddha came back to the monastery, said, where are all the monks? And, and he realized what had happened, and he taught Anapanasati. Um, so, the, something like, like the dispassion or the end of vanity, it's not just about dispassion, like that, that dispassion implies that there's nothing then. It's rather than when there is no more attachment or infatuation with the khandas, what is revealed 
is that there is that there is conscious presence, and it's not about engaging the objects. It's not what it's about. So, like in death contemplation, if you if you if you just like in your sitting practice, you you contemplate just like just like the sense experience you're having, and you contemplate like if you get pain in the in the leg, when death comes, that won't be there. You have thoughts. Death comes, that won't be there. Brain's not working. And then you you do a kind of elimination. And so what is left? Is there anything left? Well, if there is nothing left, then you wouldn't have the phrase the deathless. You wouldn't have the phrase the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed. It would, that language would not, could not possibly exist. Right? If you think that the peace is something you're going to find later on, well, what does the unborn speak to? The uncreated. Uh, what does that speak to? Well, if, if it's something that's going to be in the future, isn't that something that's going to have to arise? Isn't that birth? Isn't that something that's going to happen and appear later on? So if you follow that logic, that the deathless does not mean immortality. The deathless means there is... You can't even say a thing, that, but the deathless means that there's no, there's, it's not involved with birth and death. And the very word, it, implies a kind of a thing or an object, and all things and objects we, we notice. So you, you, this kind of contemplation is not like a belief in Nibbana, but you take those very words as your mode of recollection. Now, if you just think about those words, all, all language is conditioned, constructed, it's born and it dies. All language, right? So if you if you're logically looking at that, you realize that well can't it can't be a thought. Thought will be dead. And you keep eliminating everything and what you have is dispassion then. Non grasping, non 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 attachment. And then what happens there? In that state of non grasping, non attachment, well you begin to notice the radiant presence of awareness, or whatever you want to call it, conscious presence, and you begin to see, well, oh, that's the contemplation of peace. So the, the work I do on death contemplation or anapanasati is not just to be absorbed into the object, but actually to notice the object less. And for me, this is what I think Lumpur Man gave to Lumpur Cha when he said the mind is not the same as the mind objects. That awareness is not the same as the object of awareness. That's to my take on that. Maybe I'm wrong. But when you, when you contemplate in that way, and you, like you, you take, you take that contemplation of peace as your meditation, and then you 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 use like lying like this passion. Is that a rejection of anything? Is it? No. And then like craving, craving is what stitches together life after life after life. Well, craving, notice that, that craving arises in awareness and that awareness is not craving. It can be known. So rather than craving the end of craving, because that's what happens as we struggle with craving and we try to get rid of craving, but in, the, in a Four Noble Truths we're always asked, like, 
What is the abandonment of craving? What does that actually mean? Abandonment of craving. Well, you have to know it, it seems to me. And so abandonment isn't like uh, getting rid of, is it? It's like just not getting involved. So you have like fading away, dispassion, non-grasping, non-attachment. What are they all pointing to? The end of craving, what are they all pointing to? It seems to me the only way to realize that is by knowing and taking knowing as the object itself. Taking peace as the object. So, if you if you think about like the contemplation of anicca dukkanatta, what's that about? Yeah. Well, when you when you actually are just involved with the object and saying it's changing, it's changing, changing, you're still attached to it in some kind of perceptual, commentarial way. But when you notice, you take the per, the perception of change as your anusati, as your mode of, of, of interpretation. You have to be very still to notice that, and in that stillness, not only do you notice changing, you notice the unchanging. Anatta, dukkha, non-attachment. So it seems to me that the, the point of this exercise of meditation and monasticism and all the things we do, is, is it not the, that realization of the Buddha? If, they're not, if there was not the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, there would be no release from the conditioned and the born. Isn't that, isn't that the point of it? I'm reading a, a kind of interesting book now on the, on the making of Buddha, Buddha called, I think it's called, Making of Buddhist Modernism. And he's talking about how Buddhism as it's presented in modernity takes away, it detraditionalizes, demythologizes, and psychologizes everything. And nowhere in his theme so far, in his thesis, I'm only a third of the way through the book, does he talk about the unconditioned. Nowhere does he point to, well, what was the point of this? So do ask yourself, what, what is the point of your meditation? Right? Why, why do you do what you do? Well, some of what we do is we just want to relieve the symptoms of suffering. And that's a sort of take on Buddhism, a modern take on Buddhism. We want to we want to be stress-free and we want to be liberated from our um, neurotic habits and you know we want to be more happy and and productive people and so on. That's that's all good, right? But but then I think you do have to put in mind, well, as monastics, as people in monasteries, what, what is the Buddha recommending for us? Or what is at least the tradition recommending, especially from Sajan Chah and Ajahn Sumedho and our, our teachers that way? And it seems to me they're recommending a kind of very deep and profound letting go, which is the realization of peace, through, through non-grasping, and it's not just a kind of alleviation of your symptoms. Now, the alleviations of one's symptoms of suffering are are certainly the method, you know, that's the course you take, so you learn about craving through your suffering, and that's brilliant, that's really, really brilliant. So you learn about craving through the fears you face, craving through the neuroses that you've been conditioned by, your family and culture, and cravings that come up through sickness, cravings that come up through difficult social interactions, cravings that come up through being angry, falling in love, being fed up, being bored, cravings that come up through 
feelings of self-inadequacy, cravings that come up from feeling arrogant and better than everyone else, and so on and so forth. <laughs> that was a list. <laughs> but what is the point of it? Is it point just to be some kind of, you know, nice, nice guy, Abbot, socially adept, and who can carve Buddhas? <laughs> Those are all side issues, aren't they? But so, so to keep in, I think to me at least, is very important to keep in mind. What is the? Why am I in this? You know, why did I sign up, and why do I stick with it? Is it? Is it just because I'm the honcho and I get all the goodies first? <laughs> Obviously, if that was it, it'd be horrible, horrible way to live, live life. But that, if you keep, well, I, for me, if I keep in mind, what is my aspiration, and how does it? Is it in line with what? I think this teaching is about, and that I constantly, and I think this theme, this theme of peace, is, is has to be, seems to me, it has to be central to our our aspiration as monastics. Because if you don't have that, don't you just end up psychologizing Buddhism? Don't you just end up ha- kind of having being like a a good Vinaya keeping monk, or which is okay, but. At least to me, that's always been very. This this theme is very central. I suppose that's why I'm very attracted to Lampasamedo uh, because that's basically what he's teaching. You know, he's teaching that tenth, that tenth at recollection. I think I'll have to ask him. Is that what you're teaching? I'll see him shortly. <laughs> it seems to me that that's what you know. His emphasis has always been on the unconditioned, the uncreated, and then I find that. Uh, very attractive, and if I have, and if I keep that central, then the others are very complementary. The the Brahma Viharas are very complementary because the the opening of the heart creates a mind which is free from craving. It feels fulfilled. It feels nourished. It feels happy. But that's that is uh, a kind of um, that's not the central theme for me. But it is is very helpful. A contemplation of of death, and so on. A contemplation of elements like you think, like how we do body meditation, in in like looking at fear. We're really looking at the elements, aren't we? Like like uh, vibration or, or pressure or things like that. We're trying to see the psychology of fear as an element in the body of pressure and change and such like. So all those are 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 brilliant in realizing this passion and realizing what that's about so it's not like this kind of one technique or there's one way you have to do it it's rather understanding what the aspiration is about maybe and then seeing what is it about these different techniques that are offered us or that we read in other sources how might they complement that that central to me central aspiration that we have as as monastics so the uh, just do something like that. It's quite quite interesting. Like in like in death meditation, rather than uh, just think it's about death of the body. Well, what is it? You you like I do that a lot. I just I just kind of sit and or lie a lot now, <laughs> and I I I just kind of well this 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 will be gone. That'll be gone. That'll be gone. Well, what'll be left? Is there anything left? Well, you think nothing will be left. No thing will be left. What is the unconditioned? What is the non-born? So then your mind naturally starts to just go to silence because it's a kind of 
an inquiry which is facilitated by non-grasping or, or dispassion or disinterest. And then you see that the inquiring itself has no answer. But in that sense of attentiveness, without the need for an object, you begin to sense the resonance of silence, the resonance of stillness, always there, always available. And that's dispassion. So dispassion isn't just a rejection, right? It's a place where you realize, I think, realize the unconditioned, a possibility. So Asuba meditations, which are just simply palliative methods for, for, for greed, okay, that's the kind of recommended. So if you're feeling, how do I say it in mixed company? <laughs> If you're, if you're feeling uh, a lot of raga, <laughs> um, and you think that like asuba meditation is just so you don't feel raga, yeah, maybe, maybe that works. But it's it's more than that, you know. It's more than like thinking that raga is wrong and that you have to get beyond. It's just like raga is just the wrong place to look, you know. Sexual desire is just the wrong place to look. There's nothing right or wrong about it. it is as it is, but thinking that you should not have sexual desire or thinking that by pursuing it you will you know you'll you'll achieve something is 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 basically the the misunderstanding that you can find the unconditioned in conditions you can do that so rejecting sexual desire is still a preoccupation of sexual desire following the fantasies of sexual desire is still a preoccupation of sexual desire this passion is saying sexual desire is as it is you know, it moves through consciousness, it has energies, and then, and then moves away again. But dispassion is not like a, a judgment, a moral judgment, an ethical judgment, a kind of Judeo-Christian judgment against the bodily's energies or the bodily's passions. It's just like saying, that's not where it's at. So don't get hung up on it, don't get hung up on it either way. Don't, don't pursue it, it's not a big deal. It's just a kind of irritant that comes up. <laughs> So, so then the, the perspective is not like around evil and bad and guilt and all that. No, it's just to uh, be cool. Don't grasp. Let it go. Let it go through you. Be transparent, non-grasping, dispassion. And why? Because the interest in now is on the unconditioned. Whereas, say, you know, the, the, the pursuit of the passion mind is in, more interested in the conditions, which is all right. Is all right, but obviously that's, you know, that. So we're like we're interested in making a good kitchen, and I'm interested now in trying to create a meditation hall. That's that's nothing wrong with that, but that obviously isn't why we ordained. You know, that's more like an offering we make. So Tanchun, that's been very helpful in creating a beautiful kitchen for us, and all of you were helping set it up, and and uh, I do my bit, and everyone does their bit, and. Tansuvijano souls wonderful things and uh, so on and so forth. So those are those are like generous offerings, but they're not the they're, they're they're again they're the way we live our lives in a decent and wholesome and beautiful way. But then I think it's very important to keep to keep in mind what is the central theme? What is the central theme of, of, of this monastic tradition? To me it seems that recollection of peace kind of points to that in a very, very good way. Okay.
I'll leave that for reflection. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.